preparing this to the stream. And we are live and hello, 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 Facebook family and friends. Um, we just want to say hello and how you are doing today. And it's a wonderful Saturday. Brian? That's my usual hello to, um, to the audience, wherever you're watching. Thank you for sharing the next hour with us. Hope you guys are all doing well. So today we are getting into, we're picking up where we left off with the policing um, African-Americans from slave patrol to police departments. And we are back with our wonderful, wonderful guest, Mr. Ralph Gobby, retired chief, um, police chief from Detroit. So we are gonna talk with him today. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. Uh, so good to see you and Brian. I've uh, been really looking forward to this second conversation so we can, I mean, we we just scratched the surface, I believe, of things that we can really talk about. And now we got a, a, a verdict with Derek Chauvin. So it's, it's, it's uh, the timing couldn't be better. Oh my goodness. So you, you have no idea. The thing is, is that this is this, the reason why we're doing it on a Saturday is because of the fact that we have control on how long we can go. <laughs> <laughs> So you're right. We scratched that surface and um it was a good scratch too. It, it was, was a good scratch. It was a nice <laughs> good scratch. You know those moments where you be on a wall and you hitting that spot on your back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of scratch it was. <laughs> so yes, yes, I am ready. I'm really ready to get into that. Um Brian and I were talking and we were discussing like how to jump back in. And I wanted, I know we left off with the trying to make a comparison between the slave patrol Hippocratic, well, the slave patrol oath and the oath of the police of today. First off, I'm glad to say it's a lot longer than the one today. Yes. <laughs> but the slave patrol one, it just says, I state your name, do swear that I will as searcher for guns, swords, and other weapons among the slaves in my district faithfully and as privately as I can, discharge the trust reposed in me as the law directs to the best of my power. So help me God. So my question, my first question to you right off the break, how is that different from today's um, patrol? And where did Mr. Chauvin step off? Uh, ostensibly, and, and, you know, sometimes when people think you say this, they think you're being hyperbolic. Uh, but in reality, the, the, rea the on the boots ground reality for black and brown people is still the same. Now, you know, it's amazing. A lot of people wouldn't even know or recognize the fact that not only were there slave patrols, these were not informal groups. These were formal sanctioned groups that you know had a, had an oath and they swore to those oaths now you look back you fast forward to 2021 uh you have the oath keepers um i don't think there's any mistake why uh they have oath within their uh their 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 title uh a white supremacist group uh you have the proud boys a white supremacist group and 
when you look at militias, which are, are, are illegal in most iterations that we see across the country, but the whole militia construct uh, all goes to a preservation of uh, a time um, when white supremacy, and we have to call it what it is, because we have to keep calling this disease what it is. It's a pathology, it's a sickness, it's an illness. Because the three of us know that race, number one, is a construct. Uh, it's a social construct. Um, it is not one that, uh, you know, in any way or means um, delineates between the ability to think, to learn, to grow, to achieve, to given the same circumstances, there is nothing supreme about the white race when circumstances are such for a human being, first of all, to be acknowledged as such. And secondly, to be given an opportunity to um, uh, uh, self-determination. And the, uh, the, the very uh, aspirational things, which is ironic, I wrote a, um, an op-ed that was published uh, for about Juneteenth. And, you know, talking about the fact that the very words in the Declaration of Independence, the very words in uh, some earlier iterations of the United States Constitution um, were written and surreptitiously, you know, the hate did not change the wording because it was presumed, it was assumed that black and brown people were less than. So when you look at how police and the construct of policing in the United States relative to black and brown people, uh, the over-policing, the, um, you know, you, you, police officers sworn to an oath to protect and serve the Constitution of the United States, of your individual state, and typically the, uh, the, 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 the ordinances um, that are germane to your local jurisdiction. And in that, when those applications go forward, they're not done so in an equitable way. Right. The black and brown people from a very, very, um, uh, uh, quote unquote, discretionary, because officers have officer discretion. Prosecutors have prosecutorial discretion. Uh, you look at 22 and a half years um, for um, Derek Chauvin. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, on all things being relative, that's the largest sentence we've seen for a white officer killing a black male, at least in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. However, you look at, I think uh, the gentleman's name was Pembley, uh, but he received 700 years for shooting at police officers. Now, as you heard the judge deliberate, and I understand one judge cannot change history uh, by overcharging. However, he had the ability to charge Chauvin with 30 years or more because the four exacerbating issues that Chauvin brought to the table were so egregious in the murder of George Floyd that it's still, still a disappointment that black life is still not valued at the same level as white life in this country. And this is, this is by our sworn legal entities. These are not subversive groups. This is a court of Hennepin County that is charged with representing the interest of the state and the state of 
Minnesota said, yep, you killed him. Yeah, it was horrendous. Yes, there were four, I mean, extenuating circumstances that made it, that exacerbated the killing. Yet, with all that being said, I'll give you 22 and a half and not 30. When we know that there are black men that are sit in jail right now for much less, where a body wasn't even attached. As a matter of fact, a former Detroit mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick, had a 28-year sentence commuted for white collar crimes. Not one body, not one person died as a result of the former mayor of Detroit. Yet, this gentleman, we watched, and I use the term gentleman, um, just being a respectful human being, because uh, I, you know, in front of polite company, I, I don't want to just say what I, I completely want to say. I got you. Okay. Uh, but the <laughs> way he treated a human being um, is still discouraging for me, for a judge to be able to rationalize uh, why 22 and a half years was enough. And what had my blood boiling yesterday was Chauvin's mother speaking. Mm. Not one time did she express any regret that George Floyd's life was taken. Not one time did she express any type of um, remorse to the family. She had the unmitigated gall to say, you know, I can't hug my son. And we, we had just heard George Floyd's daughter who will never see her father ever again. And to me, the underlying message from his mother was still that black life should not trump because I know Derek and Derek is my son and Derek, she, it was not even a question of he was justified in what he was doing. She felt he should have been completely exonerated. Yeah. It made no statement at all relative to the loss of the Floyd family. So it, you know, I, I, I am, you know, for the, for, for the audience, I'm dismayed at the attitude because you can change laws, but laws don't change people's hearts. And that's what's concerning to me is that there is still a large portion of this country who their heart is so depraved when it comes to the right of black people to exist I'm not even talking about exercising our rights, but to even exist because she was so patently dismissive of why they were in that court in front of that judge that a life was literally snuffed out and not just snuff, this was not a, you know, the, the proverbial split second decision, you know, where, you know, you had to make a decision and your decision was wrong as outraged as you are, reasonable people can wrap their minds around that. And I have problems with that. We talked about that. We may get into that still uh, because the benefit of the doubt for black people is not the same as given for 
uh, white um, suspects. But with that being said, not even an acknowledgement that we deserve to exist, let alone we deserve a day in court. Regardless of what you felt about George Floyd, regardless of how they tried to disparage his character as if he put his knee on, that he, that he, had, he, he happened to put his neck under um, uh, Derek Chauvin's knee, as opposed to Derek Chauvin put his knee on George Floyd's neck. We've got so far to go in this country. We really do. If uh, I can just jump in for a sec, I just want to pick up on something that you that you said, Ralph. And even the evidence that was could and couldn't be introduced was completely different for the two men because with George Floyd, they could felt free to pull in anything and everything that they wanted to say about yeah. his past. But when it came to Chauvin, oh no, we can't talk about other incidents where that led to complaints about his conduct. We can't talk about this part of his past or that part of his past. Yes, That's what made me so angry was the disparity and the inequality in terms of even the evidence yes. that yeah. could be introduced. And, and to, to, to completely vilify the victim, uh, that to me is something that of all the things we need to correct in our criminal justice system, um, police officers cannot be held to a different standard. Uh, if you have a history of abuse, uh, a pattern of neglect, a pattern of doing those things that are harmful to a community, that should be just as much a part of what the community has to weigh as George Floyd's past. Because even when they talk about his drug abuse, Danya, it, it, the past, we've heard for the past four years of, oh my God, we have an opioid crisis. <laughs> it's a health issue. We've got to intervene because now it's touching Appalachia and now it's touching you know, uh, rural areas and uh, it is, you know, it's not discriminate towards black or white. As a matter of fact, the white community is having a huge issue uh, in the opioid crisis. Yet when it was crack cocaine, which was just another iteration of powder cocaine um, with deadly consequences in the black community, it became a war on drugs, right? which that war on drugs was, you know, a euphemism for a war on black people. Right. And can I, can, am I right in thinking that it wasn't even black people who brought the drugs into the country? Absolutely in not. Yes. Who brought, who, who brought those drugs into the country that they were selling to black people? If you go the to government. The, the government, you go to the Iran uh, uh, Contra, excuse me, the uh, Contra, um, the, 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 the drug for guns trade yeah. uh, for, for the Contras in South America, that flooded the LA streets uh -huh. of California with cocaine. We don't have cocaine fields in uh, Watts. We don't have cocaine <laughs> fields on the east side of Detroit. The coca, you know, the coca plant doesn't grow in the areas that we live. Uh, we don't manufacture the guns that uh, are interjected into our community. Or uh, charter the planes to go down to Latin America to absolutely fly it back. And, you know, it is so amazing how um, purposefully ignorant uh, that America will be towards its own crimes. 
and the two most um, egregious crimes potentially in, in world history um, are the genocide of the indigenous people of the land we call the United States of America, which was not discovered. It was, uh, it's a colony, it was, it's colonization. You can't discover something that belongs to someone else. And I use this example uh, when I teach criminology classes, when I talk about uh, the inequities in policing. We have a country that was, you know, founded on, on theft and genocide. Um, I can't go to an affluent suburb of Detroit because I don't like the living conditions in the inner city and find a, you know, three, 4,000 foot square mansion that the residents are out of town or the residents are in town and I go take up residence in their home. And so I've discovered, you know, the, the, the home of the Johnsons. And, and now that I've discovered it, I'm going to annex parts of it until the, I take over the entire mansion. That's called breaking and entering. It's a felony. You go to jail for that. Yet, our whole system uh, of the what's purported to be the greatest democracy in history uh, is one that is built on a foundation of genocide. And then the second most egregious atrocity, you know, or one, you know, among many in world history, is that of the transatlantic uh, slave trade. Where West Africans were sold into uh, chattel slavery and brought in the bowels of ships. You know, we're the we're we are the only residents in this country. Um, you know, and I, I I do not begrudge anybody that has uh, been an immigrant to this country has gained citizenship and they thrive off this country. But when you talk about immigrants from the standpoint of black people, we didn't ask to come here. <laughs> one, um, one of our uh, people on, the, on, on in the audience, Cher Griffin, she said, when you made the comment about the mother, cause mm -hmm. I, was, I was completely blown about the mom. Um, she said, exactly. And then to call him your favorite, I was like, wow, one, how, how, I wonder how, her other children felt about that and then yeah. what's with his father not being there the whole family sounds screwed up but that part okay but <laughs> I, was, I, I noticed that as well I yeah, that dad well. wasn't there and and you know like you said as far as I found it to be very selfish yes of her to come off and actually come out her mouth and say things like and say things like, um, yeah, me and his dad won't be around if you put him in and he gets out. Okay, so? Yes. Or uh, me, if, if you sentence him, sentencing him mm -hmm. means you're gonna sentence me. Yes. Oh, all right, so then everything that you're saying can be doubled back to yes. that family. Yes. And if we wanna look at the sentencing part, if he gets sentenced 20 to life, you still gonna see him. Yes. You're sentenced 20 to life. Mm -hmm. But George got sentenced death. To death, exactly. And so did that family. And I don't think she did any help uh, to herself no. um, by what she did. I don't think it had any bearing on the charging decision. 
But I thought it was very instructive relative to when you talk about white supremacy and white privilege and um, not calling our white supremacists, but it, it just oozed of white privilege. You know, what I'm losing, what my son can't do. And again, George Floyd cannot do anything. He was sentenced to death without a charge levied against him, without a day in court. And for something that all things being equal, if you go to the extreme and say, yes, it was a counterfeit $20 bill and he passed it intentionally. Arguably, he still would not have been convicted of anything major. He wouldn't have. So, and you see, I I I locked my mouth when you well, when you. Made, you, I, when well, you I don't know somebody's heart, you know. I, I you know, so that's just a personal thing. Right, I, I, but I still I locked my mouth because like when when she made the comment of all of the people that were sending in letters yeah. saying believing that he was he's not innocent. guilty, yes. yeah, that he was innocent. I don't care what I I heard my Brian. Can I put my personal feelings? I'm asking. <laughs> um. Well, you know what we have on the horizon. So whatever you say is what you say. So I I gotta learn. Think about it, Donnie. I mean, just think about it, Donnie. I okay. think. But I think what? Well, actually, while you're thinking about it. I just wanted to quickly pick up on something that Ralph said. The bit that made me really angry about what his mother said, you know, she's talking about her potential loss. Mm -hmm. And I sat there thinking, Breonna Taylor's mother will never see her again. Never. Sandra Bland's mother will never, never. see her again. Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, I mean, the John Crawford, the Orlando Castile. The list goes on. on and on of Black mothers. Yes. And I'm sure that there's Latinx mothers who, you know, have endured similar losses, yes. they will never see their children. They will never see their children. Yes. And to me, that just smacks of, you know, a belief that black, you know, and, and, and I, I have to say this, you know, it just bothers me knowing when people do the equivocation, well, black lives matter, but there is no but. There's never been a question in this country that white life matters. Uh, Emmett Till, was killed um, on the word, on the lie of a woman who today knows that she lied and has suffered no repercussions for lying. Not one. Um, yeah, where's the federal case for that? Exactly. Um, you know, and you can't tell me that there's not a resolve to go back and make corrections to historical wrongs. Uh, ask Bill Cosby as he sits incarcerated. Now, I think the things that Bill Cosby was convicted of, I think they're reprehensible. Um, and I have, and so I'm not equivocating to say Bill Cosby should be free. But what I'm saying is if you have that kind of resolve to not forgive his crime and go after him at an older age and not have any concern about his health at an older age, this woman did something that was so openly egregious. And when asked after the conviction how she felt about Emmett Till's death, she had no concern at all. So, you know, again, when people just will not objectively acknowledge white privilege, it shows a pathology in this country that um, we, ha we have some very sick individuals mm. in this country that, you know, and, and, and it's not, 
and, and this is the thing about the Trump administration, uh, where uh, I, I loathe that person, mm. so let me be clear. But I thank him in a way. And what I mean by that is he exposed an underbelly in this country that when black people would talk about our experience, because we had become so politi politically correct, that to a certain extent, the white community believe as long as I don't say the N word, anything else goes. Yeah. And Donald Trump really peeled that onion back to show, no, this is how we really feel. Yeah. I can call you the N word in so many ways um, through my our, uh, through actions and beliefs and disenfranchisement and uh, just blatantly um, dismissive, hypocritical, um, you know, when Donald Trump left, Mitch McConnell is still the same institutionalist that is trying to hold black people back with a smile. With a smile. You know, uh, you know, we think there's nothing wrong with the voting system across the country. When it is so patently obvious when black people started to utilize the very same mail-in voting system, the very same absentee voter piece. And when Donald Trump talked his people out of using the mail-in system, it only exacerbated the Republicans' um, issue of trying to get reelected. And thank God for a Stacey Abrams, uh, just a, a warrior. To me, our modern day Harriet Tubman, you know, you know, if you if you if you're gonna get us caught, you know, I'm gonna take you out now, you know. But I thank God for the strength of a, a woman, you know, that is typified uh, the, the 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 grandeur of the black woman and what the black woman has burdened and carried throughout all of this um, history in the United States. Um, it, 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 it's just unbelievable, but. You know, so when I say I thank Donald Trump, I thank Donald Trump because um, the quiet things are being said out loud now. They don't even try and cover them up. Right. And I'm, I'm going to have a little bit of a dying moment right now. Yeah. I'm going to say the thing that makes me the angriest about mm -hmm. being back, back in this country again is it's to me, it's lazy hating non-white people yes. because you know what? Non-white people didn't create any of this. Any of these issues. Not one atom, That's not one nuclei. Yes. Of this. That's right. We try to navigate it and survive it, but it has nothing to do with us. So being angry, why are I always I ask myself, why are people, why are certain Americans angry at the wrong set of people? Yes. And you know, that goes back to the whole social construct of race. And when you look at uh, some of the things that really allow um, slavery to thrive in the South. The social construct of, of race and blackness and uh, inferiority really was a, a wedge issue to drive between um, African slaves and poor whites because poor whites were treated very harshly by mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a classist way, but the social construct of race allowed the poor whites that were mistreated to feel that at least I'm not them. 
because the, 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 the economics of the free slave labor meant that there were droves of white people that didn't have jobs because why would I pay you to do what I have a slave to do? Mm -hmm. well, this country uh, still reaps the benefit. Uh, there are generations of white wealth was robbed of black people. When we look at Tulsa, Oklahoma, in Greenwood, 1921, a hundred years ago, can you imagine how much wealth that was robbed from the descendants of uh, landowners, homeowners, bankers, grocers? Um, I mean, the, the, the amount of commerce, when you see um, swaths of black wealth and community taken away through the interstate highway system and I mean, well you can go through you can you can take you can take something like that mm -hmm. and and think about just everything not just something as simple as um black wall street because mm -hmm. we there have been several black wall oh, streets yes, yes. throughout through, throughout the history i mean it's probably one of the reasons why the reconstruction period is not taught exactly. because that's where you see the, the growth and the uplift uplifting of black people by black people. Black you know, yeah, I mean everything, all of that. It wasn't yeah. until I started doing genealogical research that I learned of how many black senators, black lawyers, black doctors, black local, state, and federal government employers were really in to what was what was what people don't really want to look at right. as the recreation of the new America. Because once 18, once the Civil War ended, this was a new America that was, was coming around. Yes. Yes. This was something new. Now you had to add these people that you didn't want. Yes. So now that you're adding them, this is now a new America. This is no longer the, the America of the American Revolution. Yes. This is a new revolution. This is a new thing. This is a new, all of that. So when you started doing that and you started including these black people and then they came out running from yeah. not just from slavery, but they came out intelligent. They yeah. came out smart. They came out knowing how to do and meet the needs that you were already meeting and had to go to the school yeah. for to get. They came out doing all of those all different of those things, things. Yes. scared the living crap out of them. Yes. And, to like, you, and to give you an example, and to give you an example, one of Donya's kind of ancestral cousins mm -hmm. born into slavery, emancipated with you know everyone else in 1865, and within 10 years he went from being illiterate to being literate. Mm -hmm. He could read. He had it. He went to university. He got a degree. Became a preacher in 10, 10. years. That's amazing. Yeah. On his own back, and our family history is littered with with stories like that. Yes, sir. Um, which is really powerful. One question, yeah. that, another question that I had for you, because um, I've had to do a lot of reading about police immunity. Yes, I mean, I, you know, I could put the, the words together and kind of work it out, but I just wanted to get more nuance on it. Can you talk a little bit about how that even, how police immunity kind of developed as the police force developed? Because I don't think most police departments around the world have that kind of immunity. They certainly don't in the UK. I can definitely speak about that, and they don't have it in Ireland. And, and police immunity, as we know it, is a is a construct to shield police officers from strict liability based on their conduct. 
for how they do or do not do their job. And the reason why it has such a deleterious effect on um, how you control police, because there is really no risk for the police officer at all. Uh, and that absence of risk, and then you overlay that with um, issues of uh, white privilege. You overlay that with white supremacy because um, it is not a secret that uh, white supremacists are in the ranks of police in the United States of America. So when you take away that ability to hold those officers accountable um, personally, where their pensions may be at risk, their um, personal assets would be at risk. Uh, it is a construct that is set up um, that does not at any point really inure to a black person having uh, some type of um, a, a, a remediation they can expect uh, to go after that person for that behavior. And that is, you mean, doctors have to have um, malpractice insurance. Lawyers have <laughs> malpractice insurance. Uh, their licensure issues, uh, we look at New York. Uh, just suspended the law license of Rudy Giuliani has not been convicted of anything. Uh, and I don't think to a person, anybody would disagree that that man should not be able to practice law um, in a cartoon. So uh, qualified immunity is a very, 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 I mean, not only, now let me be clear. If you took away qualified immunity, that would not completely solve the issue. Uh, you know, I want to be honest, but you can, you cannot you cannot take away the emboldened the emboldened nature of when you're taught in a police academy that the government has your back regardless, and the standard for the government not to have your back it is so so egregious that you can damn near do anything, and police unions are going to drag you into court and probably going to get a, uh, a, a, a decision in the affirmative that that officer has to have legal representation provided by the very taxpayers that you transgressed against and that you can't go after anything uh, of that officer's personal assets. That, said, that, sets a, that sets a tenor for a culture that is so deeply entrenched in being quote unquote above the law. And you hear that and you know, people, you know, kind of blow that off. Uh, but that Brian, people don't realize what effect that has on an officer going out because they don't have really have to contemplate uh, that shot. And I, I want to disabuse people of the now of the notion and not that, Policing does not have its dangers. It does. It is a horrific thing when a police officer is lawfully doing his or her job and they're killed in the line of duty. Mm. But we've but we've we've built a whole um, pathology around. I feared for my life for police officers that is not rooted in any kind of statistical data that supports the perceived danger. So if you go to the Department of Labor website right now, or if you were to Google the 10 most dangerous occupations, and you can do this for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years straight, police do not fall in the top 10. Mm -hmm. 
uh, roofers, um, construction workers. I mean, it's a number of different jobs where if you look at the deaths per 100,000 employees as an industry, police don't even rank on that issue. Now, when I say that, that is not to disparage at all the responsibility that comes with um, providing a service under the color of law. But until we start to really look at the science behind that, we give police officers a built-in excuse almost with impunity, absent uh, a Darnella Frazier that would film the entire thing. Because as we look at the Derek Chauvin verdict, um, we can't lose sight of the fact that that brave young lady had not have filmed um, that on her phone. And you didn't see the reactions and the um, machinations from the people begging this man not to kill him. Uh, Off-duty um, EMT trying to render aid. If none of those things happen, I presuppose, and I think with good um, basis, Derek Chauvin would have got away with murder. And how many officers have gotten away with murder because the narrative was the same as George Floyd, but the evidence was not as, you know, just that in your face where nobody could ignore that nowadays. So, Brian, you bring up such a profound point when you talk about qualified immunity and um, why and, and as we talk about the, the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, when Representative Clyburn spoke of, you know, there was some wiggle room on qualified immunity, um, it felt like a gut punch to me. There may be some things you can compromise on in that legislation, which the whole thing of compromising on my right to exist, to me, that's a, that's a really sick construct in itself. But in comp, you know, in, in, in thinking about how they come to compromise with a, a law that's palatable to everybody, um, to me, that's one of the deal breakers. And it has to be because uh, as an industry, law enforcement is completely broken. It is not regulated nationally. And to give officers a blanket um, qualified immunity uh, I think that is, I think that only exacerbates the problems to the nth degree. I don't understand why policing is treated so differently than the military, because both, both take oaths to protect and serve. Yes. Military to protect and serve us abroad. They do an amazing job, yes. you know, considering, you know, I, I honor my father who was um, in the, you know, career, career Navy. Yes, sir. While the police are supposed to protect us at home. And in the military, you don't, military men and women don't have qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. If they mess up, they get court-martialed. Yes. So I, I'm failing to understand why there isn't parity with our domestic defense in the form of, of, a, police, of a police department. And, and also for the industry, and you, know, you have a lot of advocates that say that if you do that, you handcuff the police officers and they, won't, and they don't want the job now. And I look at it a, a bit different, Diane and, and Brian. I think a lot of officers are shunning away from the job now because they can't do those things with impunity that they thought they would be able to do. Look at Portland. Yes. Is it, yes, look at Portland. I mean, you have officers that are refusing to do their job 
because they're not being allowed to, to engage in certain tactics. To me, that speaks to a very, very sick culture. Um, how many of us go to work, are compensated, and we tell the customer how we want to do the job? You know, that is just not really a construct in a capitalist society that would allow any business to thrive for any meaningful amount of time. I don't care how great this, you know, uh, the product is. Yet, police have the unmitigated gall to threaten not to do their jobs when certain civil rights are demanded of a group of people. And they have unions that will defend their right to tell people how they enforce laws in their communities. In more affluent communities, police don't go in and tell um, billion dollar homeowners, well, this is, you know, we're gonna do a, um, a, a speed trap on your street, um, in your gated community with winding streets and multi-million dollar homes. Um, those very residents would go to the town um, manager, to the city manager, to the mayor, and would be demanding the police chief's job. Yet in, in, in communities of color and less affluent communities, and this is why um, there has to be a conversation where uh, white America understands that keeping a foot on black Americans necks surreptitiously keeps a foot on theirs as well. Uh, because a, a lot of the things that we deal with are, are, are very much class related, dressed up in race. Now, and this is where the sobering part comes in for the black that feels like they made it is when the police officer pulls them over in their own neighborhood. Um, I think we all remember very vividly uh, when the professor um, at Yale, um, when President Obama said the officers should be, he, he, said, he said something that was pejorative to the officer and there was this amazing backlash against the president which precipitated the beer summit. Well, a black man that's mistreated in his home by the police an Ivy League professor, yet the president of the United States of America has to make peace with a police officer that did something wrong. That again speaks to the again white privilege and it speaks to the fact that the, the policing is done in two different ways in this country. There's policing relative to black people poor people and the disenfranchised and there's policing of whites and those that are more affluent. And until we have honest conversations like we're having now about that, um, this is going to be the demise of the United States of America as we know it. Right. Because now the, the, the very, very, very conservative far right wing um, don't mind being in bed with white supremacists, don't mind being white supremacists, are doing so many things to uh, make this a minority rule country. Uh, the filibuster, uh, how Joe Manchin and Kristen, Kristen Cinema 
can, with a good conscience, defend the filibuster when you weigh that against the rights of Black people to vote. Um, I am so disgusted by those two individuals because, number one, I would just feel better if they would just go ahead and switch parties and be who you are because the, the, the placation that is going towards trying to get these two people to see the value in assuring that uh, voting rights are not subverted. And I thank God that the Department of Justice uh, filed suit against um, the state of Georgia. Yes. Um, and, and, and even though we're talking about um, race in a much broader construct than we did in our original policing conversation, all of these things go directly to policing because your socioeconomic status in Blacks tend to statistically be disadvantaged. I think our wealth is 10 times less than that of similarly a, 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 a situated white Americans. So when you look at that wealth gap, so where I live, my zip code is more predeterminate of my um, future ability to, to vote and my zip code is more predetermined of my ability to get an education, a quality education. My zip code is more predetermined as to the, the school to prison pipeline, my zip code. So as long as these things continue to exist and you can gerrymander voting um, and continue to have a, 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 a minority of Americans when social demographers have uh, shown that by I think the year 2040, if not sooner, that the what's considered ethnic minorities in the United States will be the majority in this country. Well, I take that point because I believe that the wider American society takes mm -hmm. its cues from the police. Yes. Ahmed Arbery's murderers felt they could do what they did to him in broad yes. daylight yes. because they were acting like the police. Um, and they were former police. That, and that point cannot be overstated, Brian. Mm -hmm. So I've been going through the, um, the comments and you have questions about the CRT and the teaching of the CRT. And also um, there was another one, a question, where did it go? Oh, that was, that was actually the first question about, you know, sharing your thoughts on critical race theory. But before you go into that, there was a statement on here that was made that said by Malisha Harrington, Harrington, she said this whole system needs to come down and be rebuilt. That's a very powerful statement. And I actually believe, I actually agree with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I'm, I'm explaining to you why. Mm -hmm. And, and I may, Brian, I may sound like my ancestor at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I see you laughing, but I, I may sound like my ancestor at this point, but um, I agree with what she's saying. But in the midst of agreeing with what she's saying, there is something that people have to understand in saying that. Yes. And, and that means that you actually have to get rid of the Constitution and start it over again. Mm -hmm. That's what that means. You have to start the Constitution over again. Now, when I said I'm sounding like my ancestor, I actually 
have my white ancestor, which is a very well-known senator, Preston mm-hmm. Brooks. Mm-hmm. He is my, he is like a three times great grand uncle of mine or two mm-hmm. times great grand, something to that nature. But he said those exact words. He actually came out his mouth and he said, take the constitution, put it on the foot and stomp it out. But he was saying that because of the fact that people were trying to, to get rid of slavery. Yes. And he was like, nah, I know I'm in the South and that's what saves my world. That's my world. That's how I feed my children. Right. That's how I make my money. Mm-hmm. That's how, you know, this is where everything is. You get rid of this, then I don't have, I can't do this with your yeah. lazy tail. But that's what basically, that's what he was saying. But now he's actually right. We, it needs to be done over because the constitution itself was never written with the mind for black people to be a part of it. It was never written for that. There was actually parts that were in drums, mm-hmm. but they got rid of them. Because right, of the they got rid of them. Exactly. So Overall, the final constitution, let me rephrase yeah. it. Mm-hmm. The final constitution was not written with Black mm-hmm. people or people of color in mind. in mind. Absolutely. And because it was not like that, when you start seeing people talking about the Star Spangled Banner, it wasn't with Black people or people of color in mind. When you start talking about all of these old songs that was going on, they weren't done with Black people or people of color in mind. So we're talking about a time period where we were nothing. So what do you think that these songs are going to say? And what do you think that these songs are going to do? And then finally, the last thing that I need to get off of my chest (laughs) is the fact that please stop telling me Mm-hmm. That the Democrats wanted to keep us enslaved. All of them people wanted, wanted it. They and, were racist. Every last one of them. Black, mm-hmm. every Democrats, Republicans, Whigs, whatever you want to call them during that time period, they were all racist people. Mm-hmm. Some just had a, a, a type of empathy that the other ones didn't. Right. And be mindful, Strong Thurmond was one of the first ones that moved from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. So these things switch. Mm-hmm. These things happen. Mm-hmm. Know why you're saying no or understand when you're saying these things, what happened in the past. Absolutely. I, you know, I have an issue with that. Yes. You can't come to me about different things mm-hmm. and talk to me about stuff if you don't understand what actually happened in the past to make those things come to come to pass this is ridiculous you Mm -hmm. need to not do that yes so the whole thing about the critical race theory and them trying to take it away they're taking it away because they don't want y'all to know or remember or understand any of those things we're not talking to y'all as genealogists to ask you to live in the past we're talking to y'all as genealogists to understand the past so that you know how to fix this future. Or if I could actually put it in a different way, we're tired of seeing the past in the present yes. and seeing how it's going to lead us into the future. Yes. yes. It's very well stated. Yes. And, you know, Donnie, I, you know, two things. So I'll go to your first point about just 
tearing the whole thing down and start from scratch. Um, short answer, I agree with that. Practically, they, the way it's written made it almost impossible. However, it is going to come down one way or the other. Uh, if it continues down the track that it's going and people of goodwill don't really see that this is a seminal moment in this country's history because if we don't course correct now, it gets harder and harder every election cycle to undo the damage that um, white supremacy is doing to this country. So it's either going to happen by explicitly exploding it or this country is going to implode on itself because it cannot be a prosperous country um, and it will not be uh, the country aspirationally that it was starting to matriculate towards uh, post-civil rights act, but we've regressed in such a, a horrific manner. Uh, and the regression really, you know, if we were, if we're honest and, and, and this is my opinion, and I love to hear uh, uh, Donnie, your thoughts and your thoughts, Brian, the regression started when people thought that um, Barack Obama was a, 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 a landmark that was going to propel us into a post-racial society when actually Barack Obama ignited um, those feelings of, of race and animus towards black people and animated the Tea Party. And the Tea Party was just, you know, as, as, as much as I loathed them, I didn't realize they were the tip of the iceberg of the Trumpian era. Um, ah. But what really sparked this was the realization that a black man could get elected to president in this country. And I think for the, those that hold on to the vestiges of white supremacy and, and believe in their hearts that they are a, a superior race, Barack Obama's election and re-election, I think was more of a trigger than Donald Trump ever was. Donald Trump just gave voice to what was triggered. Hmm. And the shame of it being, that was one of the few presidencies, modern presidencies, where there was zero scandal. Zero. Zero. Absolutely none. Personal, governmental, or otherwise. Right. And the thing that is amazing is, objectively, and, and I tell people this, and I, and I say that I think with, I think pretty much with If Barack Obama had a, a jaywalking ticket, if he had have had um, a, a, a child out of wedlock, if he had have had any type of blemish on him, it would have been utilized and magnified on him um, in a way that there's no way he could have gone eight years with a scandal-free administration. The biggest scandal that I saw was when Barack Obama wore a suit that's the same color as this tan chair I'm sitting in. Yeah. <laughs> that was the most egregious thing from a conduct standpoint that the Republicans could levy against him. Yeah. Um, he defied every negative stereotype about the black man. Yeah. An impeccable father, a, 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 a husband that showed fidelity to his wife and not only showed fidelity to his wife, but public adoration and lifted her as a queen. And mm. not only did he lift her, because 
Michelle Obama uh, in her own right. Her is own doing, right. That's right. Don't need no lifting. Um, but they complimented each other. Um, Sasha and Malia, not one hint of entitlement or anything that we've seen with previous first families that have children. Hmm. Uh, just an amazing, I mean, if, if you look at aspirationally what America espoused itself to be, the Obamas are, are the poster children for the perfect, you know, for, for American royalty. We, we, we even set a predicate for the Kennedys uh, to be the, uh, the Camelot of the United States of America. When even if you look at them, if they were, and they were Irish and people forget how the Irish were treated as immigrants in this country. So, you know, a, a, a Irish Roman Catholic president, I mean, that was almost unheard of, but how, how did the Kennedys make their wealth? Through moonshine. Through moonshine, that's right. Um, so, and, and, and this is the thing, and I wanna, I wanna put a fine point on this. Even when you look at civil asset forfeiture, so if the Kennedys were the, the, the Joneses and it was, you know, Leroy and, you know, some other ethnic name. And that's how they got their wealth under current civil asset forfeiture. They would not have been able to turn around and legitimize and monetize their wealth and make it generational and make it a political household name if civil forfeiture stepped in and took Joe Kennedy's assets that were ill-gotten gained. And again, that's something that's baked into this country's DNA yes. is you marginalize a people to the extent that they no longer have access to income. Yes. To, you know, well-paid jobs, mm -hmm. all of that. So what are you supposed to do? Starve and go naked? No, yes. you do what you have to do to put yeah. money, to yes. make your money, put a roof over your head wow. and put food in your kid's stomach. Yes. But it seems as though we get we get marginalized mm -hmm. and then we get penalized for the few choices that are that are actually left. Absolutely. To to so, and, and I, I, I like to use that to kind of parlay in the critical race theory because number one is the term has been hijacked by um, white supremacists and I just call it what it is. It's been hijacked and it's been bastardized and just utilized as a battering ram uh, against any type of um, reconciliation or reckoning with America's true history. And the crazy part about it is that critical race theory is taught more so in elite legal classes around mm -hmm. a specific um, <clears throat> set of circumstances that describes how uh, laws were made that by their very language and intent were discriminatory against black people. And that's not a secret. So critical race theory really, you know, parses that down to, to the legal documents that govern this country and where we can make course corrections <clears throat> for where we know that laws were written with the, with the express intent 
but done so surreptitiously to continue to disenfranchise black and brown people. So for to so so to outlaw something that is not even taught in public school curriculums, it shows just how nefarious and afraid America is to face its ugly past, its original sins. And you can't fix these things unless you address them. I mean, but why? But why? But why? Why is I mean, like this conversation that we're having right now. This is a conversation that should be had. Yes. And I I am unsure of how many um, white Americans are watching this. <clears throat> but this is something that they need to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, we as, as African-Americans and, and other people of color, mm-hmm. we already know this. Yes. And I'm not talking about the people of color who fought to have to be called white. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the ones that stayed. Yes. Who they were. They mm-hmm. you, well, I mean, I'm not saying that they're not who they are, but I'm just saying, okay, some will get a backlash on that. My bad. But nevertheless, I'm I'm talking about because you did have some, there were some mm-hmm. nationalities that fought to be mm-hmm. to be called white. Right. There were some that did that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't meaning anything other than the fact that, you know, if this is what I, this is my skin color is that mm-hmm. to this degree, then that's what that was. Right. But my point, what I'm trying to get at is this is something that we've been trying to say, yes. that we've been trying to tell them for I don't know how long. And I think with the George Floyd, um, once George Floyd died and or was killed, and the protests started coming and the things started happening and people started paying attention to seeing all of these different things. You're looking at them and you're like, but we told you this. Yes. <laughs> you know, these are the things that we, we, but we told you this was what was going on. But, yeah. but, I've but got, I said that that happened. I have two things for that, Donya. <clears throat> Again, I guess my perspective will always be someone who's lived most of my life outside of this country. So I have other countries to compare it to. There is a real scene in this country, and it's not all Americans, and I'm not saying it's all Americans, but it's a healthy percentage that want what I call the Disneyfication of history. Mm. We go to Walt Disney World, we go to um, Disneyland, and we see the big castles, and we know that that represents Europe. And somewhere in the back of our minds, we know that that's not how all Europeans live. Right. I mean, they had peasants and serfs, and it was, yes. if Europe was such a wonderful place, Europeans would have never come here. You know, they wouldn't have emigrated here. So we know that there's, that's, there's a falsehood in the, in the portrayal of history. And I just think that that's a way that people have traditionally used to shut us down by grasping onto this disnified version of American history that's just not true. I, there's not even a smoking gun of truth yes. in the history that they want to hold on to. And I think what, they, what people who need to have that fantasy, the more we push, the harder they're fighting to defend it. And you know, as much as we feel attacked, I guess they're, they're feeling attacked too. And I don't have an answer to that. I don't know how, I don't know how, I don't have an answer as to how we honestly teach history. I mean, you look at that poor, uh, I can't remember her name, but, um, Hannah, who 
got that wonderful teaching position at the University of North yeah. Carolina, denied yeah. tenure. Denied tenure. Anyone else sitting in that position would have had tenure. But because she did the 1619 project and people felt a kind of way about that, oh no, we can't possibly give her tenure. That that's just too dangerous. Don't well, I get mean, I know how to teach it. I mean, but it's not what they want to do. Well, not only that, you have DeSantis down in Florida who's doing who passed a law to make sure that you couldn't, couldn't teach, teach it. it. Yes. And it you know, and if I can add to your point, Brian, I think the thing that, and this is where I think we have to, well, I digress. This is why forums like this are, are critical because we have to become storytellers again in our diaspora because in the African diaspora, you know, our history is, has been oral and it has been very strictly passed down. And I think we have to recreate those kind of spaces where we have these conversations um, to not only, because unfortunately now, let's be honest, I think there are a lot of Black folks that don't know these conversations as well and, and, and know these things about our history um, because we, we, you know, the way social media is constructed, the way things are marketed, you know, we become prisoners of the, uh, of the moment. So we got to go around politicians. I think the expectation that politicians are going to pass a law to help us, <clears throat> I think marginally can be effective, but I just don't see um, the, the will to do it. Um, the money in politics is just too corrupt. <clears throat> but I, I strongly believe, and I'll, I'll, wrap, I'll wrap this up in a nice package. I strongly believe that uh, because I've had a chance to speak at, at different corporate pieces in, in, in Zoom settings with, you know, maybe 20 to 30 people, uh, influencers. And when they hear the conversations, thinking people of goodwill get it. But you have to cut out all the other fluff and have these kind of direct conversations that we're having. Well, you probably set me up and perfectly, but also partially answered what I wanted to talk about next. And that's things that HR departments can do. Mm -hmm. um, that's something I really wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about. Um, because again, you have a, pretty much everyone is having these equality and diversity kind of sessions and seminars and talks and, and whatnot. And, you know, I had them in England and I'm going to be honest, uh, the university that I was working in at the, the last three that they had, I was like, I'm not going. And they're like, well, it's mandatory. I'm like, I don't want to go. It's like, and they and then I explained to them why. It's like the message that was coming across was the term, everyone needs to be colorblind. Yes. And I'm like, but I'm not blind. You're white, I'm not. We mm -hmm. see our difference. You're, acting, you're asking me to have this cognitive dissonance that, that's ridiculous. It's like, and I was trying to make the point that by doing that, by denying my skin color, denies mm -hmm. all the trauma. Yes over the generations that's accumulated in the skin color. My history is not the same as a white person's history in this country or in England or in Scotland or anywhere else. It is a completely different history that's encoded with trauma. Yes. Like Native Americans, mm -hmm. their history is encoded with trauma. Jewish people, their history is encoded in trauma. Asian people, you just go on and on and on. And I don't understand why HR departments are reluctant 
to acknowledge that. And I'm just curious in, in your training in the police department, was epigenetics and trauma, cultural trauma, even mentioned in terms of police, your, your police trainings? No, uh, unequivocally not. And you're talking about from the perspective of when I joined the Detroit Police Department in 1987, uh, a city at that time with about 1.2 million people, um, about 70% of those people African-American, African-American mayor, the majority of the city council members, nine members, the majority of those were African-American. And epigenetics were not a part of the conversation. Now, informally, yes. And what I mean by that is Mayor Coleman Young was Detroit's first African-American mayor. Uh, and you're talking about uh, when he was elected, maybe six years post uh, the 1967 riots, um, civil unrest. And so there was a dynamic shift in where Detroit was going, a level of, of black pride, black empowerment, uh, but also some white flight as well. Um, so it became very polarizing. Uh, there was a study that was just published, I want to say within the past two weeks, uh, Detroit area and the metropolitan area is the most segregated um, community in the United States of America. So to your point though, Brian, um, no, because if you, don't, if you don't speak of things, and I'm glad you brought up the atrocities that the Jewish people had to overcome, that Asians had to overcome, that the indigenous people had to overcome because those have been historically recognized traumas <clears throat> and they're still acknowledged to this day. Nobody tells you, you know, let's just forget about the Holocaust. You know, that was, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, you would be considered anti-Semitic and probably drummed out of any um, mainstream uh, conversation. Um, and, 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 you know, the reparations that have been made uh, for indigenous people and some of their land still being recognized as sovereign, uh, places where they have casinos where financially some reparations are going back to the indigenous people. Uh, every disadvantaged, traumatized group in this country has been made whole except black people. Um, and and that, that is something that to me, <clears throat> when the conversation of reparation comes up, why is it so appalling to people? And this is my opinion, because out of all of the ethnicities, out of all of the uh, um, historic trauma in the United States of America, Black people are still not considered to be equal citizens. And to me, I think that is why they can so very dismissively say that the votes don't count. Mm -hmm. It's not that the votes don't count. What the thing is, black votes don't count. Mm -hmm. That's the message. You also can't dismiss the fact that there are politicians who are descendants of slaveholders, and they're probably thinking, "Oh, am I going to have to pay money? Yes. It's going to come out of my bank account." Absolutely, Mitch McConnell. Yes, I called you out by name. Yes, sir. And 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 oh, those, we can do that. <laughs> but those 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 are uh, are facts. They they can't. You know, those, those are facts. Your genealogy is your genealogy. Right. And the benefits that you reap from that, those are tangible. Those are not intangible benefits. You're right. So there's still people that today, their wealth, their family's wealth at, are a direct result of, you know, the sweat, blood and tears of people that look like you and I. And 
you know, there has to be a reconciliation of that. And I just don't know how you meaningfully push the envelope to the extent to where there ever be enough support uh, to, um, because if you look at Tulsa, you know, and I thank God that we're finally celebrating it um, and celebrating is wrong, commemorating um, the lives and the legacy and recognizing the atrocity of that. And, but you can tangibly look at how the government can start to make calculations on what reparations will look like for descendants of those brave men and women that lost their lives by those trailblazers. And, and Donnie, I think that could be done, you know, and that's the beauty and genealogy and what you all do and how you tie it into really the, the social fabric of where we stand today. And, and the way you said it earlier, Brian, um, you know, how much of history is visiting us in our present and it's not warning us of what our future is going to be because we're not listening to the lessons. Uh, th this is, I think the thing that's frustrating for me is I'm 53 years old and we know the answers. We know how to fix this, but we, the people that have the resolve and the goodwill to do it, the system has just been so corrupted by money that I don't know if we'll ever get to that meaningful end without that implosion of this country. Um, this kind of caving in on itself because of its greed um, and its failure to reconcile its, 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 its nasty past. Yeah. You know, when I think about the potentiality, you know, this is fantasy, but, you know, imagine if we had a time machine and I got in and I went back to, oh, I don't know, 1630 in yes. Virginia mm -hmm. and sat across the table from my ex times great grandparents, Margaret Cornish, Peter George, the Driggers, yes. just all of you know, those first African families. If mm -hmm. I were to sit down to them and it's like, yeah, you know the legal system that you're fighting and that you've actually overcome, many of you, to get yourself out of your, your bonded service. Yeah, it still ain't for Black people. Yeah. I'm coming to you from 2021. You're in 1630. Nothing has changed. That, would break, my, that would break my heart to tell my 11 times great-grandparents that message. That, and, that. It's sad, and that's the part that people, I, I think that's the part that is being missed um by i'm i, I don't want to no let me rephrase that it's not being missed it's being ignored that's what's being ignored by the gop and what it is that's trying to be done because if you can pass because i i also wrote an op-ed that went to our our genealogy page um about juneteenth and i discussed you know the things that was on there and and how everything that is going on now and you get this whole holiday, that's the same thing that was going on back when Martin Luther King's holiday came across. Yes. Yes. So is this giving us this holiday, is it just an appeasement to make us think we'd have made it to something or what have you? Because my family has been fighting and what I mean by my family, I'm talking about black people as a whole. <laughs> my people, my family have been fighting to get that anti-hate law that the Asians got in less than a year. Yes. We've been fighting to do that since 1865. Yes. yes. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So why is it that it's so difficult for it to come for us? But 
it happened in less than a year for another another group, another nationality. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad that they were able to do that because what happened to them, what was going on was wrong. Yes. It was wrong. But what about what about George Floyd? What about Tamir Rice? What what we could take if we could we could do a video of names and that video will still be playing today. This this video, we could have done that video a week ago and it still would be playing today of the millions of African-Americans who have died going back through to slavery because that's where you would be counting from. You wouldn't be counting from after that. You were actually counting back to slavery. Dying for no reason whatsoever. The lady in the in the Phoenix riot who was sitting in her house, yeah. Brian, you know her name. She was sitting in her house. Eliza Goods, minding yes. her own minding her, minding own her business, and she got shot. That's shot. Yes. That's a Breonna Taylor story. Yes. That's a Breonna Taylor story. These things aren't new. That's happening to us. This stuff has been going on over and over and over and over again, and. Until we have the conversations like this, until we continue to just open up and say them and not be afraid to say, well, look, this was going on then. This is why we're coming. This is why we're saying this. This stuff is never, ever going to end. The one thing that I don't agree with, I don't agree with just teaching our own. One of our, our, um, um, Catherine Williams, she said we need to teach our own in order to move forward. I don't believe in that, and I don't believe in that because if we teach just our own, then those other ones don't know what's going on. No, they're still living in ignorance. They're still living in ignorance, exactly. And I I have a response to your Juneteenth comment because I think it, personally, I think it's really cool um, as a federal holiday, but I'm saying this to you, but I want the DNC and the Democratic Party to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Juneteenth as a federal holiday isn't going to make my heart palpitations any less severe if I'm driving and I see police sirens <laughs> in my rear view, in my rear view mirror. That part. Now, I know that there are going to be white Americans who are going to say, well, anyone is going to have palpitations when they see a police siren, you know, coming up behind them. Not like a Black person. It's not the same. Not like a Latin, not like a Latinx person. Yeah. Make it palpitations, not like we do. Absolutely. And and the thing that people that I want our audience to see is that the retired police chief just sat here and said, not the same. Not the same. It is absolutely he just sat here and said, not the same. And, and that's <laughs> Donnie, that's 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 demonstrable. That's not my opinion. Uh, number one, I, I've been a black man with red and blue lights in my rearview mirror. And we have to contemplate if speeding can end up in a death penalty. That that brings on a different level of stress and trauma than am I going to get a ticket and I have to go to court or pay it? Because that's the difference in the dynamic mm-hmm. when a white person is stopped. In, in look, that, black look at that poor lad that got shot over having an air freshener yes. in his car. In his car. 
The whole look at the look at the army the army dude that was in Virginia, and I can't remember the name of the, the town, but that was this year. Yes. In his full army dress yes. uniform, stopped by two policemen with guns drawn, going, get out the car, get out the car. I thought the military was supposed to be sacrosanct. Yes. Apparently not. Exactly. Not if you're black. Not if you're black, at least. Absolutely. And and, and to me, I think the thing that, you know, as really kind of talk about this subject in its totality for a country that's 245 years old the slaves were only freed 156 years ago hmm. so when you say look that at one more time say that one more time give them the difference of number the united states july 4 1776 245 years ago as we start to head towards the 4th of July is when this country became an independent standalone country. Um, and 156 years ago was the end of slavery marked by Juneteenth, June 19, 1865. So, so when you look at it in that context and people wonder why black America is in the state that it's in, it's what has been perpetrated upon us. And it, it, it is just un, unfathomable to think that you can put all these obstacles in the way of a race of people simply because of the color of their skin and disadvantage them in every kind of way and then expect them to come up with the same results of a community that has 10 times your wealth. And, and, and a part of that wealth is based on my life. Huh. Mm -hmm. that, that, that is the thing that is, is irreconcilable, um, even by some of the laws that are being proposed. How do you make that up? How, how do you make these people whole that have no fault of their own? You know, people talk about the choices, even in uh, traffic stops. You know, why did they fight? Well, you know, if they, why did they run if they did nothing wrong? These are physiological responses to trauma. Mm -hmm. We are programmed for We're that. Programmed for that, you know. If the police stop me, they must think I did something wrong, so I'm running because I'm afraid. Or if the police stop me, I saw what they did to George Floyd. I'm afraid. I mean that those are triggering events. Mm -hmm. We don't reconcile and wrap our minds around what the physiological response is to trauma. Um, they, they've done studies, Brian, to show that. Um, generations away from Holocaust, Holocaust survivors have some of the same trauma issues as those that were actually in the internment camps. That trauma yep. is transferable and it does go down through generations. Uh, Post-traumatic slave syndrome. These are, these are traumas that are revisiting us even to the extent of how we punish our children. Corporal punishment, the way we do it in the black community, and we accept it as that's what, you know, that's what's great about us. It's a replication of what was done to us, the harm that was perpetrated on us. Because the our behavior was controlled through violence, fear, and intimidation. And so, murder. And murder. And murder. <laughs> and you know, so now we've carried that to our, our traditions of, 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 of black culture. We made that culture, and that's a part of our culture that I don't think we should embrace. We need to take a different look at because um, 
you know, and I'll, I'll be very transparent. My clinical psychologist, when I was getting treated for PTSD um, as a result of 25 years of Detroit police work, he said, you know, you didn't make it because of those beatings from your father. You made it in spite of them. And, you know, the pathology behind, you know, beating someone into good behavior, if we really think about that, how is that serving our communities? If we look at the level of violence that we perpetrate against each other, um, so we want to use limited violence to raise and train and rear, but now you program that child to think that violence is the remedy. Because when I didn't do what mommy said, I got beat with a belt. You know, I got smacked across the mouth. Well, I'm not, I want to, I want to jump in on that because I'm not, I I didn't have to beat my children. I didn't have to spank, beat, whatever words you want to use. I didn't have to do that. I know this is controversial when I bring this up. So (laughs) No, and and, and it is to a certain degree. And to a certain degree, I, I want to say I agree with you, but then another, when that young man after the Freddie Gray, when the Freddie Gray issue was going on in Baltimore mm-hmm. and that young man was out there mm-hmm. and his mother went and got him mm-hmm. on TV and she snatched him. Mm-hmm. Before that even happened, my son, my 20, now 25 year old son was like, I'll be somewhere. I'll wake up somewhere because my mother will snatch me. Yeah. He was like, my mother would have done the same thing. But y'all got to understand, see my son, See my my son. Mm. He, I have great. I I'm, I have been unbelievably blessed with four absolutely beautiful, mm. absolutely intelligent children. Mm. Um, but that particular one has always been my fight. You know that that particular one. And although I've never had to beat my children, he has been spanked once or twice. And Donnie, let me give context because I agree with you. Let me tell you why. Because the black woman, again, post-slavery was put in a different position. Yes. And the black woman had to make sure that her child didn't sass Mr. So-and-so. Yes. Her child knew, no, you cannot drink out of that water fountain. Yes. Child knew that, no, you cannot touch this. You know, so from the black woman's perspective, her discipline was a discipline to save us from some actions that could result in us being an Emmett Till. Right. Uh, so, so when I speak of, you know, uh, but I'm talking about the more extreme. Uh, right. And I think, and that's why I'm getting at, I think people need to understand that there is a difference mm-hmm. between the two, because like you just said, we went, we did things because we were trying to save you from other stuff. Right. I mean, I have gone as far as to tell my son, hey, yo, let's go to the police station because if you want to try this, then they need to explain to you what it is that you're doing so that you know. And then when I stood in front of the officer and I said to him, I told you as a kid, when you got younger, when you got old enough to understand that I'll take you out this world before an officer. Yes. Don't you ever do this again right don't ever do this so that's what he meant by um it didn't mean physically that i was going to do you know i was going to hurt shake this that third but you know he was like yeah if that was me my mother would took me out yeah then you that was it Mm -hmm. and even with the trump because he is he he does his thing when it comes to trump 
and and we clash. But and when he told me mm-hmm. when he was going to the the, the when the insurrection happened, mm-hmm. I was there serious on the phone. I said, let me tell you some good stuff. Mm-hmm. When you see the people popping up in the air, yeah. that's me mm-hmm. rolling them over, <laughs> knocking them up. Oh, yeah. Because I'm coming for you. Understand right. that. Right. I'm coming. That's mm-hmm. going to be me coming. Yes, ma'am. What did I do? Got a phone call. Mom, I'm home. Okay, good. Thank you. Yes. Do not put yourself in a situation that right. is going to hurt you in the long run. That's all I'm asking. No, and that's and that's the that's the that's the tug and pull uh, for a black parent that raises a, a, a conscious black child. Um, I think it was James Baldwin said to be black in America is to be in a constant state of rage. Mm. You know, it, it you know, and, and you want your children to stand up for what's right and to be activists, but then the parent of you doesn't want to lose your child in that fight. Right. Uh, and that's that's the that's the the real tug and pull you have in your spirit. Um, because I know my daughters want to go out and she has, she's gone out and protested going back to Trayvon Martin. Um, and she's very much an activist in that sense. And you know it. You know I. It just scares me to no end uh, that you know if my child got hurt doing that. Um, but it makes me proud, in a sense, <clears throat> that I place something in her that makes her recognize that there's a cause that's even greater um, <clears throat> that sometimes we even sacrifice our lives for unknowingly. Uh, so uh, Don, Donnie, I we 100% on the same page on that. Mm-hmm. That woman uh, was trying to save her child yep. and snatched him up. That was not a beating. That was a frustration. That was a, yep. I'm taking back what belongs to me. I'm not going to let the streets have you. Yep. I, I completely yep. that. Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rephrase that just a little bit with, um, with a personal experience. As I said, my father was military. Anyone growing up in a military family knows what that means. Imagine there's probably some police families that are kind of... Um, my dad, my dad was military as well, so I get it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was his way or the highway. And I remember um, it was just before I went to university, we'd had a really bad argument. And I'm like, why are you always trying to micromanage every aspect of my life? And he he was really angry, but then he actually kind of mentally counted to 10 and he took a little step back and he's like, I don't understand what you don't get, what I'm trying to do for you. Wow. He's like, there is no part, there is no people in this country who will fight to keep you safe and alive other than your family. Yes. Right. Well, I looked at it and that was the first time an adult had ever said anything like that to me. And I had to take a step back and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he mm-hmm. can, I'm starting to process what he's just said. And I'm like, but for real? Yes. And I actually asked him, but the police, because I grew up in a Connecticut town, mm-hmm. had a different relationship with the, the police than perhaps other people have had. That wasn't even a factor to me. Mm-hmm. But when he said it, and you know, we were talking about things we've been seeing in the news, you know, everything from, um, I can't remember his name, the, the guy that got assaulted in LA. That Rodney talk, King. Rodney, Rodney King. King. You know, we'd had discussions about that. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, now I, now I get it. No, I, I and think, that was like the saddest, that was the saddest thing for me to hear is that my father didn't think I would act that any of his kids mm-hmm. would be safe living in this country. And I think that's probably, you know, as parents, 
you know, as black parents raising black children in the United States, um, because our, our kids are born so innocent and so, you know, unaffected. They're not born with hate. They're not born with a cognition that our difference is based on melanin in our skin. But at the point that either by experience or by observation, they realize that we're treated different. Right. We have to have that conversation of, you know, this is how, you know, you, you feel at home, but I need you to understand what happens in the real world and to do it in a sense that it doesn't jade them, but it makes them aware. Um, that is, uh, you know, I think that's the most difficult balancing act that, you know, white America, they'll just never understand uh, right. what that, what that, what that dynamic is. Right. And now you have me thinking about HR departments, because pretty much any HR department I've ever had to deal with with employers is either entirely white or majority white. So you're talking about equality and diversity from an angle that you yourself don't even comprehend or understand. And I think that and I think that's the wider issue that also needs to be discussed diversity within HR departments and how to have the conversations, uh, because you know, and that goes to a lot of the legislation we're seeing across the country. And Ron DeSantis has been like the the, the gold standard for ignorance. Um, yes. And you know, <laughs> it, it, it's an unwillingness to even allow people to have the conversation. You know, well, we don't want to make white people feel um, guilty. Well, it's not a matter of guilt. It's a matter of education. So we don't replicate the same behaviors, which, you know, Brian, you alluded that, to that earlier. And HR departments, they control, you know, the, the, the places where commerce <clears throat> takes place in this country. And if you can't even, you know, educate people as to the, 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 the workforce that you're going to work with, the clients that you're going to service, the customers that you're going to come in contact with, and have an appreciation for those differences, have these conversations to understand from an empathetic standpoint, how to empathize with people, it's it's, it's scary. It is really scary. But it's a way to teach it. It's a way to teach it. So, uh, because Brian and I was having this conversation before and we were talking about it and you brought up epigenetics and, Mm. and things of that nature. I need for people to understand when I talk about genealogy, Mm. I'm not talking about it just from the black standpoint. I'm talking about it in general, I'm talking about it for everybody. So we have, just like we are trying to understand where we came from, white people need to understand what they experienced and what they came from. And black people need to understand that they did actually experience it. So with that being said, when I say there's a way to teach it, Mm -hmm. think about a horror movie. And this is what I said to Brian, think about a horror movie. Will you allow your six-year-old or your five-year-old to go see a horror movie today mm. with the blood, the gore, mm. the, the all of the stuff that's going, I mean, a real, real live uh, exorcist right. horror movie. Mm. You know, would you allow that to happen? Most no, people, no one would say, everybody be like, no, nah, I wouldn't let that happen. No. Mm. And this question would be posed to people like Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't let that happen. This goes to critical race theory. Yes. If you wouldn't let that happen, mm-hmm. they let that happen to their children back then. Yes. Because their children saw these black men and women be hung. 
Their children saw these black men and women lose their their everything once they died. They saw their necks getting broke. Then they saw these people take shooting practice on on those that were hanging. And they saw their family members pick up pieces of their ear, their arm, their finger, their leg, their toe, and take it home as a a souvenir. That's a horror show. That's a horror show. And because that horror show happened, and because that horror show was watched, that horror show now plays back into them epigenetic. Yes. No, it was watched on it was watched on repeat for centuries. For centuries. For centuries. So when we have people in our audience saying, why should we have to teach them? This is why. Because they weren't taught just like we weren't taught. And now again, that we know these things, mm-hmm. should should we be the ones to teach it? Yes. Um, yes. Yes. I, I, I do believe that black people should be the ones to teach it. Uh, and and we can at least teach it to a, a white person on how to teach it, yeah. or uh, you know. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, this is why. This is why because there's an ignorance mm-hmm. that's going on in all races mm-hmm. that don't well, know, wanna, that don't understand these particular things. Well, you want to talk about ignorance in history? Three of the biggest opponents to critical race, what they think is critical race theory, because I just want to be clear that what they're talking about is not critical race theory. But some of the three most vocal people, Ted Cruz, um, the Cruz from Florida, I can't remember his first name, and Ron DeSantis. They would not have been considered white 75 years ago. I'm not even going to go I'm not even going to go 100 years ago. Yeah. 75 years ago, those three would not be considered white. They Marco, yeah, Marco. Ted Cruz shouldn't be considered Marco. white right now. The man is Mexican. He is from Mexican descent. And he should not. Now, that's my. You talk about Ron DeSantis. That's my. That's that's that, that's that one. Who? He should not be even considered a white man right now. Even in today's society. Because he is of Mexican descent. His family is of Mexican descent. So I don't even understand why he speaks the way he does. It confuses me to no end. Because they, you know, for the Republican Party has become a winning formula for their base. Uh, And I think, you know, you know, what really is going to be telling uh, in the midterms and, uh, and then ultimately in 2024 um, you know, which, which side is going to win is good. I mean, it really comes down to good versus evil um, in, in its, in its, in its essence. But I do think that the way we have the conversation um, matters. Cause I think you said this earlier, Donnie, um, or, or, and you were going along this, this track. Um, not only will we teach it, but we would teach it in an age appropriate manner. How about that? Um, you know, you would not teach um, a elementary school student in the same manner you teach a middle school student. That's right. How you would teach a high school student versus how you would teach a college student. And educators are, are, are you know, uh, are wise enough and, and scientific enough to know how to craft lesson plans that are age appropriate. Right. So, you know, even, you know, the conversation that has been just hijacked um, and for political purposes, because it plays well, um, you know, on that ultra right echo chamber. But 
I think one thing that would help, and I and I have, and and Donnie, I think you saw a little bit of this in me deliberately earlier when I corrected myself about calling um, or, or or alluding to the fact that um, Chauvin's mother uh, was exhibiting white supremacy. And the reason why I, 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 I try to dial back on that is because I think when we when we start off there, the conversation devolves. Mm-hmm. But when we start off with a conversation about the circumstances and the history and the facts and the humanity and you recognize my humanity and I recognize yours, then the conversation has a chance to evolve. Um, and, and how we have, cause I think the politicians and quite frankly, you know, I, I watch CNN, MSNBC, um, occasionally I'll turn into Fox just to hear what the other side is saying. Uh, but I just can't stomach it to be totally honest. Uh, it's, it's just gotten so out of hand. But I say all that to say that um, the media um, has really, you know, and I hate to just put the media in one category, but the media, they are into clickbait sound bites and they don't have the time nor do people have the attention and they're competing with too many channels to get news in context like we used to get news when we were younger. Um, you know, you would have a news series or you, you know, you didn't have 50 stations and everything wasn't breaking news. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, they don't even, they don't even take the breaking news banner down now. So, you know, the conversations have become so uh, marginalized on both sides that we keep having these conversations in the media. And I think, you know, again, and, and I, I just applaud uh, Brian, what you and Donnie are doing, creating space to have these conversations outside of echo chambers and really talk about our lived experience. You know, very few people can hear the lived experience of Black Americans, and, and not at the fever pitch, but this is how it affects me until today as a 53-year-old Black man, that 53 years ago, my people were just getting a, a, a civil rights act and mm. a voting rights act mm-hmm. in, in my lifetime this this is not distant stuff this is not ancient history this is recent history and when you have conversations like that and people of goodwill again people of goodwill you have those conversations you take the 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 the, the, the motives that politicians have out of those conversations and when people talk people tend to come to some agreement. Um, But I just don't know with this microwave, social media, tweet, you know, everything in 150 character society, uh, will people take out the time to do what we're doing and just meaningfully have these conversations? And again, I understand some of Particularly, well, I was going to say white male anger, but to tell you the truth, there are white women that are just as angry as the men. I get some of the white anger. I don't understand why it's directed at communities of color or even the LGBTQ community. Because you know, we, especially people who look like us, Mm -hmm. are, as you you rightly said, Ralph, our ancestors in Africa weren't signing ship maps, signing to go on a voice. Right, right. This country. They right. were dragged here. 
Yes. Right. And, it, and while their presence meant that your poor white ancestors weren't hired as paid farmhands, mm -hmm. that was not our ancestors' fault. No, it wasn't. Right. You want to be angry, be mm -hmm. angry at the right people. Right. And I get it. I'm not going to say that the poor whites were as much a victim as, as enslaved people were because they weren't. Right. Could, exactly. But they had a raw deal. Yeah. And I mean, you know, knowing what some of my poor white ancestors mm -hmm. went through, yes. I would never deny them that ever. And I don't know, I don't understand why descendants of poor whites who are these angry people mm -hmm. doing the 6th of January thing. Yes. can't see it from our perspective too. Wow. We see it from theirs, mm -hmm. but they refuse to see it from ours. You know, on that point, Brian, that something that is a blip in American history um, and is being unearthed. But I thought the fact that Fred Hampton, um, when he, uh, from the Black, uh, Black Panther Party, um, when he started to engage um, you know, ethnically white, um, poor, disenfranchised people and start to have a different conversation. That made Fred Hampton very dangerous. Well, that's what made Malcolm X dangerous. Made Malcolm X dangerous. Made he, he, became more, he became more dangerous than ever when yep. he was like, whites can be a part of it. When, they can uh, part of, when that happened, they were like, oh, no. Uh, when Dr. King, you know, the, the, the campaign against uh, poverty and, and, and he started to raise issues of inequity and start to deal with finance and uh, equity and pay, he became dangerous. Yeah. You know, so I, I say that to say that <clears throat> there's a benefit to the establishment. And I, I, I hate to use terms like the establishment, but there's a benefit to us being at, at odds. Um, because from a because prior to the social construct of race, class was the big construct, especially in European America. Yeah. There's a caste system. So your station, your class in life, you know, whether you're born into royalty or you're a peasant, you know, or a plebeian, you know, all you know, all the different things. So if we ever got to a point of enlightenment to realize it's more of us, quote unquote, than it is them that are benefiting from all of us, uh, the, the one percenters. And I think that's the appeal of a Bernie Sanders and why AOC and those folks are starting to resonate because there's a, this is what gives me hope. There is a younger generation that is destroying the social construct of color and they are starting to assimilate around um, the, 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 the inequities that 1% of this country owns what, 40 to 50% of the country's wealth. Mm -hmm. That's an aberration. That's crazy. Um, that is crazy. That is, <laughs> it makes sense on no level. Uh, when we can't even get $15 an hour for workers and, and once it passed, that $15 an hour is not a true $15 an hour if you understand economics and how every day we talk about $15 an hour, these young people are that much further behind. So, you know, how we, you know, start to codify a conversation around not only our genealogy, our, our, our sociology as well, 
our socioeconomic status and start to you know look at how poor people are treated in the equation and how the middle class is being eradicated i think more people more white people will start to do the math and understand that you know it's a it's a small percentage of very very wealthy people that are controlling the dynamics to the extent to where they keep us fighting and they keep making money and, and keep prospering. And, and, and we're moving very quickly to being an oligarchy. We have oligarchs. I mean, you figure um, Elon Musk, um, Jeff Bezos. I mean, they're fighting about who's going to uh, uh, get on a, um, a spaceship to go outer space. When right. we got people in this country that can't even afford to put, uh, you know, we have food deserts in this country. We had right. Do you know what brought that home to me? Was during COVID, mm-hmm. seeing these absolutely insane pictures on the news. I believe it was Texas. Mm-hmm. Miles long yes. of cars waiting to get free food. Yes. And you have people talking about the privilege mm-hmm. of going into outer space. Yes. That was an obscenity. It is. It is. Seeing that. It is. And, speci- and specifically because a lot of those people, and in this, some of the news stations were quite clever because they didn't show black and brown people. They did. They showed white people they who did. had never yeah. been employed or jobless. Yeah, absolutely. As- it was a culture shock. It was a culture shock. That's exactly what I was getting ready to say. It was an, it was an overall culture shock, something that they never would have thought of because for us, when it happened for us, it was when you saw the raids of like when the, uh, Hurricane Katrina went through New Orleans and they were going and, and, and rioting through the stores and just going to the stores because they needed food. Absolutely. As opposed, you know, or something like that. You didn't, set, you didn't set up no food line then or, and you know, anything like that. But it literally is the same thing. It's the same thing. But you didn't set up a food line when it, when we had Hurricane Katrina going on. You know, you nope. didn't you didn't respond to Hurricane Katrina like you responded to this overall pandemic. Yes, the pandemic went on, on every state, you know, and on so on and so forth. But the response still should should have still been the same because instead of it being all fifty states, one particular state, matter of fact, one city was one shut city. down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One whole city was gone, yeah. was shut down, and they had nothing. Yeah. They had no food, they had no water, they had no electricity, they had no houses, they had no crews, they had no money, they they had nothing, which is the same thing is what this which is what this pandemic did yes. to all of us. It, it was the exact same thing, just in a smaller in a smaller portion, but you didn't react in that way. This is why Kanye West came out of his mouth and said. Bush don't like black people. Yeah, yeah. Like, he came out and said that. Right. And, and Donnie and Brian, that really, I mean, it, it, it perfectly brings us full circle to your initial question of, you know, slave patrols. <clears throat> so, you know, it may be a bit um, hyperbolic to say that we're still under slave patrols. But I think it presses the point that the construct of the slave patrols in concept and application is not any different in how policing is utilized in the United States right now. Because you go to Katrina and you saw disadvantaged people and the remedy was police and military. Um, And 
we continue to make police and you know predominantly because uh, uh, you know those situations of disaster bring the military in but you consistently see the police brought in to deal with social um, deltas and, and economic deltas and the police are not the answer and right. I, you know so I, I think out of these conversations as well we really need to understand public safety from a much different lens because what I'm afraid of now and they talk about the crime rates that are going up across the country if you were to look at trends over a five-year, 10-year, 20-year, um, crime is still at lows that in the 1980s would be unprecedented in these quote-unquote spikes that we're going through now. <clears throat> what people don't realize, or what they may realize, is that you have access to news in real time at your fingertips at any time of the day. And that's whether it's you know, formalized media, or that's somebody sharing a video of a crime that they captured in progress. We didn't see those things. They were just statistics in times past. But with these visual mediums that we have, we see things that we never saw before. A lot of the things that are going on in policing that we are just vigorously talking about right now, and black people, we know this, they ain't new. You know, as the kids say, it's new to you, but I ain't new. It's new to you. And so it's in mass is new to the country to watch George Floyd <clears throat> murdered on camera, to watch Eric Garner <clears throat> murdered on camera, to watch uh, Mr. Scott in South Carolina shot in the back. And, you know, I mean, these things, you know, these are new phenomena for us not to, these are not just anecdotal things, but they are demonstrably true and have irrefutable, incontrovertible evidence that these things that we say happen in the black community are actually happening. But they're not new either. No, that, that's my point. They're not new. Because what I mean by, you know, that is, I don't care what nobody say, George Floyd's murder was modern day lynching. Yes. Oh, no, that's exactly. They watched it then. They watched it. This is the, just the first time they seeing it now. Yes. You know, and, and it was and it was it was shown that was a modern day lynching. Amar Aubrey. That was a modern day lynching. It was, and we saw it. It wasn't and just you saw it. It wasn't you know we had to wait six months for an investigation, and then the investigation found right. You know, and there you know, and then the level of investigation that goes into it because it was a black man versus white, you know, assailants and. The white assailants given the benefit of the doubt because they're former police officers. The police officers are noble. A lot of these things are getting wiped out because of this one little thing right here. Hmm. And, and so, and then going back to your trauma points, these impressions are in our brains now. They're not just stories that have been recounted. Um, these are things that you can go to YouTube and pull up and you can see George Floyd. Yeah. You can see uh, Ahmaud Arbery killed. You can see Eric Garner killed. You can see Philando Castillo killed. You can see the, you can see um, uh, Bryant in Columbus, Ohio killed. These are things that you can see. Um, so it, it, it does have a feeling, um, especially on the crime issues, that crime is just rampant out of control, but police are, are, are police are, are not just getting out of control. Police have been out of control. 
Because hmm. you actually raised an incident. I meant to ask you about this earlier in, um, in our conversation um, about the, I don't understand when it's been established that a black, per, that a person is unarmed. Hmm. The justification and is running away from you, but mm. you know that they are unarmed. There is no question about it. Mm. How is it justifiable to shoot them in the back? I mean, if you're going to shoot them, aren't, aren't please trained to shoot them in not a something, you know, like a leg or no. an arm or something no. to, to stop hey, them? And Brian, I'm glad you brought that up because um, a former chief in Detroit years ago I got into some hot water by saying a quiet thing out loud. And that same question was asked, police are trained to a standard to shoot in what's called the T-zone. So that T-zone is, is it, it starts at the top of the head and it goes yeah. through the midsection of the body. This is where all your vital organs that uh, either yeah. circulatory or your uh, nervous, your central nervous system run through. And poli police are trained to shoot until they stop the threat. Yeah. Now in that T-zone, more often than not, when those shots take effect, they hit vital organs. So that's why the, the kill rate when police fire guns is pretty doggone high because you're trained to stop the threat. If you look at that video with Makaira Bryant and how close she was to the other person when that officer fired four shots in rapid succession and hit Makaira Bryant in her T-zone area with every one of those, he did what he was trained to do. Yes, he did. So that's something that, you know, that's one of the dirty little secrets. So when we say train to stop the threat, a reasonable person would understand that if you shoot somebody in those areas with the type of weapons we carry, a likely outcome is death. So is there any kind of comprehension or understanding that the person that they're facing off with, and this isn't just limited to black people, but I, I will say non-white non people, would perceive the police officer as more of a threat than what they perceive themselves being to that police officer. Absolutely. Yeah. That is a very, very reasonable and probably provable premise from a psychological and a psychiatric standpoint. Again, you know, when you talk about trauma and the transference of that trauma, we're not only carrying the trauma of these recent events, but we carry the, the trauma of the Bull Connor area police, era police department, the Jim Crow era police departments, where we see police officers seeking dogs on black people in protest. Yeah. We see firemen uh, using water hose um, with high pressure, pressure. to yeah. displace black people from um, <laughs> protesting. That that's 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 trauma, just as the Holocaust trauma, just as uh, the internment camp traumas that's, you know, generationally passed on. And I encourage people, there's a book uh, by a gentleman named Bessel Vandal Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score. And he talks about those trauma phenomenons and our overuse of medication and not using psychotherapy, uh, but also mm -hmm. how trauma is passed down from generation to generation. And these are scientific studies. So with the knowledge that we have, you know, a lot of the police situations we could mitigate through different tactics, uh, different engagement strategies. Going back to your point, Brian, that you made earlier about uh, Dante Wright with the hanging um, air freshener as the pretext for the stop. That should not be a primary 
um, enforcement stop. So if that's not a primary enforcement stop, you don't have a reasonable predicate to stop the car in the first place. And you don't even have the opportunity to quote unquote, make a mistake and grab your gun instead of your taser, because you never had a, a reason to engage them in the first place. Hmm. So there are some policy and legal prescriptives that we could take. I just don't know if, um, you know, the state legislators have the intestinal fortitude to do it. Um, but it's, it, it, it's much more nuanced. And when we have these nuanced conversations, there are solutions. There are definitely solutions. And added to that trauma is that message, which used to be quietly spoken, but now I think they speak the quiet parts out loud. Black people in particular are told, well, it is what it is. Suck yeah. it up, suck it exactly. up. Yeah, yeah. And because we're not allowed, we have historically, as a people, never been able, never been allowed mm -hmm. to express our anger. Exactly. Or our frustration. Mm -hmm. So you have all of this trauma, and I know I said this in the, the first, in our first episode, you have multiple generations of trauma. Yes. 11 to 12 for many of us that gets added, you know, you get more of that trauma added every generation. We're adding it, our own trauma from this generation and passing on to the next one. Yes. But because we're not allowed to express it, it gets compressed. So it expands, compressed, and it just becomes this really dense thing. Yes, sir. And all it takes is just a spark mm -hmm. and it explodes. And then we, get, then we get the usual white comment, why you all have to be so aggressive? Yes. Why you all have to be so angry? Why, why don't you just comply? So, so destructive. Mm -hmm. mm, he said, comply? why don't you just comply? Mm. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, wow. I mean, this, I, I appreciate these conversations so much. Um, they're, they're necessary, but they're cathartic as well. It's just good to know that there are like-minded people, uh, different parts of the world that are having the right conversations. And I, I really appreciate the two of you so much. Oh, and we, re we really appreciate ha having you on. And I'm just wondering as, it shouldn't have taken something as horrific as those, what was it now that they've established 10 minutes for George Floyd? Nine, nine minutes and 29 seconds. seconds. 9.29. Why it took something so horrific to get people who ordinarily wouldn't have engaged in this conversation, engage, not only engaged in this conversation, but out there marching peacefully, yes. I'm gonna add, mm -hmm. peacefully, yes. in a way that I hadn't really experienced in this country before. And I'm gonna say that to say, what will it take to get a larger, we're never gonna get everybody. Right. We're never gonna get everybody, I'm not Pollyanna, but to get another percentage of Americans who aren't black, speaking out against this i think we continue to tell the stories and we tell them with with the passion uh, the eloquence and the dignity that the victims deserve to have those stories retold to have those videos shown with context um, it should not be our job to demonstrate our humanity to other people but by the same token i think you know i'm a grandfather my daughter, my granddaughter is seven months old. Um, my son-in-law is a six foot five, tall, dark and handsome black man. Um, you know, my daughter's a young black woman. Um, you know, I, I feel an obligation to tell their story and to show humanity and to show, you know, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. When you pull me over, 
I'm not just a, 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 a ticket for you to meet the quota. I'm not, you're not pulling over a suspect. Um, and, and I am optimistic enough to believe in my faith tradition that uh, the truth will set you free. And if we continue telling the story, continue to tell the truth, uh, continue to speak truth to power. Um, and then, you know, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has, it never mm -hmm. will. Continue to demand. Because I've been asked by racists mm -hmm. on Twitter and Facebook, what do you want? Yeah. And my answer is the same. the same. I want to feel as safe. Yes. In this country, I preface it by saying there is racism everywhere. Everywhere, it's, yes. It's, yes. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. I want to feel as safe in the country of my birth. Yes. I want to feel as safe in the country that my ancestors literally built, mm -hmm. that my father gave his life yes. service for for 30 years. Yes, as I felt when I lived in, when I was living and working in places like Japan, yes. Hong Kong, mm -hmm. Italy. I mean, Italy is racist off the chain. Yes. I felt safer in Italy than I feel here. France, England, Ireland. I mean, even Russia. Yes. Russia in the 80s and then, sorry, Russia in the 90s was like the Wild West. Yes. You, you really had to have your wits about you to go mm -hmm. traveling around Russia. I felt safer in Russia than I feel in America in 2021. Yes. And, and I, anyone who wants to say on, on social media or YouTube will go and live there then. Yeah, lived, lived abroad for 30 something years. I'm back and I'm fighting for my country. Yes. Fighting for my country and for my people. Absolutely. Well, so, I just want to thank you so much because it's it's after six o'clock and we could just talk all night. And you I, are kidding. No, no, you're not. No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, I'm wow, not. I don't want to no I know he got dinner he got to do. I, no um, I just want to thank you for it just coming back and being on the show again and just doing this special with us and having this conversation. And anytime you need to vent, you got my number. You can call yes, me. I'm, I'm like, I got you. Go ahead, baby. I'm here. You through. You know? <laughs> so, um, but anytime you want to be on the show, if it's something that you want to talk about, we are always here. We're revolving. Mm. And, um, we, we love the conversation that you give and we love the knowledge that you spread and the nuggets that you drop to, to the people that listen. So I just want to thank you, you know, just for just being on the show and allowing us yeah. to also vent to you yes. about how we feel. I mean, it's a shared experience and, you know, uh, the Bible says a threefold cord is not easily broken. So it, it's just empowering to me to have these conversations. And I just appreciate you both. I'm a phone call away uh, for anything you need. Uh, and I mean that sincerely. Well, bless you very much for that. And again, thank you for the um, for the generosity of your time. And uh -huh. your honesty. Thank you both. And have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. you. Well, next tomorrow, guys, we talk, we discuss um, in this, uh, the old fake news. How old fake news can lead your genealogy astray. We have got some examples for you. <laughs> yes, yes. So make sure you tune in, four o'clock, same time, and we will be ready to talk and come with your questions. So thank you guys for just listening in and hanging in with us for these two hours. Thank you again, um, Chief Rap, well, retired Chief Ralph, and thank you, Brian, just for being my cousin, because I love you. Yes, you too. <laughs> 
as always, thank you, thank you guys at home. It's been, it was, it's been such a wonderful conversation. I didn't believe that that was two hours, but it is. <laughs> All right. So bye, guys. We love you guys. All right. See you tomorrow. <laughs>